Let's open our Bibles this morning to Psalm 130, 130. always a good idea to follow along, not just to uh, make sure that I'm on track, but uh, to read the text itself, uh, the Lord will begin to speak to you uh, through it. What's important here today is that we're taught by the Holy Spirit, not necessarily what I say, but what you hear and what comes from the Lord. So Psalm 130 and the topic from what he calls the depths The psalmist cries out to the Lord, trusting in his forgiveness. The title of my message, You Take My Depth Away. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we we do ask for the Holy Spirit to be our teacher. Uh, We ask for what you've promised, because you said he would do just that. We know that you're here in a special way, ministering to your saints, because you reveal yourself that way in the book of the Revelation. Uh, And so, Lord, we just uh, submit ourselves to listening with hearing ears to what you have to say to our church. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. How long can you hold your breath underwater? Most people in good health can hold their breath for approximately two minutes. That's why every time a character in a movie or television show goes underwater, I start a stopwatch. They spend a ridiculously long time performing their oxygen-depleting heroic acts underwater. Now, some celebrities are the real deal. Extraction director Sam Hargrave claims Chris Hemsworth held his breath underwater for nearly three minutes. In filming the extended underwater sequence of Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, Tom Cruise consistently held his breath for between five and six minutes. Both of them are going to be beat by a girl. When we return to Pandora in the sequel to Avatar, a large portion of the story is going to be told underwater. Rather than rely solely on CGI and special effects to simulate that underwater realm, director James Cameron filmed many of the scenes underwater with the actors. Kate Winslet eventually got to the point where she was holding her breath for a full seven minutes. Now that I've got you Googling for the world's records, I'll just tell you. Set in 2012, the men's record is 22 minutes and 22 seconds. The woman's record, 18 and a half minutes. If I've inspired you to go for your personal best, wait until your swimming pool water is at its coldest. Breath-holding records are attempted in cold water because you can hold your breath up to twice as long underwater as you can on land, and if the water is cold, your body slows its heart rate and metabolism in order to conserve oxygen. So your best chance is in cold water. Something else that I do not recommend, you didn't hear it from me. Our insurance company makes me give these disclaimers. (laughs) The Guinness Book of World Records, and personally I think this is a cheat. I, I don't like this, but listen, this is true. The Guinness Book of World Records allows contestants to hyperventilate for up to 30 minutes with pure oxygen before they submerge for their record attempt. It helps the body expel carbon dioxide. Technically, it's called oxygen-assisted static apnea. And so they they hold the world record for holding their breath, but what they really hold is the oxygen-assisted static apnea record. And so I just think it's a cheat. Have you ever seen, speaking of world records, have you ever seen the Nathan's hot dog record being... They don't really eat the hot dog. I mean, they just stuff them like this, and they're going all over the place. I mean, just... 
I don't know who makes up this stuff. Now, in Psalm 130, the psalmist said, out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. The depths are an illustration. In this psalm, they illustrate the spiritual state that the psalmist was in. He reveals that spiritual state in verses 3 and 8. He mentions both his and the nation's iniquities. He and Israel were drowning in their iniquities. He and Israel, we would say, were backslidden. Being backslidden is like drowning in the depths. You keep sinking further and further, holding your breath, but there's no hope of air. No hope until you cry out to the Lord. Immediately you find you can breathe again. How is that possible? That cry out apprehends a glorious truth. God has forgiven your sin. Maybe no one here is a non-believer, though I doubt it. Maybe no believer here is backslidden, though I doubt it. No matter, all of us can marvel at and be grateful for and be humbled by God's forgiveness of our past, present, and future sins. So I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, dwell upon God's forgiveness of your sins. And number two, revel in God's forgiveness of your sins. Let's take a look at our dwelling upon that in verses one through five. I'm going to start with a disclaimer here. Breathing is being used as an illustration that we can all relate to. This has nothing to do with physical breathing techniques. I'm not going to have us all with our eyes closed breathe out our sin and breathe in God's forgiveness. When I was in sales about 50 years ago, I'd go to these seminars for training to get everybody hyped up, and they always wanted to have you breathe for success. Seriously, and they'd make every say, now everybody, you know, sit quietly with your hands up. I don't know why I'm doing this voice, but. <laughs> and with your hands up, breathe in success. Breathe out failure. In success, out failure. And uh, it was hokey before I was even a Christian. It was, uh, it, so, but anyway, don't, that's not what we're talking about. The Jewish pilgrims sang Psalms 120 through 134 on their journey to the annual feast in Jerusalem. This one would remind them of God's immediate full forgiveness whenever they turned to him. They had backslidden many times in their storied history, but always God would hear their cry from the depths and they would be restored. William MacDonald, author of the very good Believer's Bible Commentary, gives this quick lesson on God's forgiveness. There is forgiveness for the guilty sinner, and there is forgiveness for the sinning saint. The first is judicial forgiveness, forgiveness from God, the judge. It is obtained by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, covers the penalty of all sins, past, present, and future. It is possible because of the finished work of Jesus Christ at Calvary. In his death, he paid the penalty for all our sins, and God can freely forgive us because all his righteous claims have been met by our substitute. The second is parental forgiveness, the forgiveness of God our Father. It is obtained by confessing our sins to him. It results in a restoration of fellowship with God and with his family. It too is purchased for us by the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. So maybe you're not in Christ. You're not a Christian. You're here today to confront the fact that your sins need forgiving through Jesus. Whatever it is you're struggling with, it's not a problem with your self-esteem. It's not really a psychological problem. It's, it's, it's not a nature versus nurture thing. 
you're a sinner. And you need your sin forgiven so that your life can be filled with God and transformed in an encounter with him. If you are a believer, the scripture says, if you walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, you come back into parental forgiveness and fellowship with God. God's forgiveness is always just a cry away, and that's how this psalm begins in verse 1. A song of ascent, out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. I can think of one prominent Bible character who cried out to God in the ocean from the depths. Who is it? Jonah, of course. I, I'm going to have to tell this story. I can't ever think about Jonah without thinking about this story. When Gina was in kindergarten, uh, his teacher was telling her students about the different kinds of animals. And she mentioned that whales are the largest animals, but for some reason she mentioned that they can't really swallow people uh, because their throats are too small. So Gino objected. He's pretty grounded in the Bible there at five years old. And he said, but in the Bible, it says that Jonah was swallowed by a whale. The teacher felt like she needed to tell him that that wasn't true. It was an allegory or it was just a, a picture. And so Gino said, well, when I go to heaven, I'm going to ask Jonah. The teacher said, what if Jonah's not there? And then Gino said, then you can ask him. Beyond belief, beyond belief, fact or fiction, you decide. <laughs> Sounds good to me. God gave him his assignment and Jonah promptly did a 180. Eventually swallowed by what is called a great fish that was prepared for him. And so I don't care if whales can swallow people or not. The Bible says God prepared a great fish that swallowed Jonah. And from that fish, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction. And he answered me out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surround me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The waters surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. And so from the very real depths, as well as the depths of sin, Jonah cried out expecting parental forgiveness, and that's what he received. And so did the psalmist, verse 2. Lord, Hear my voice, let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If he prayed while he was backslidden, his prayers were off topic. There was a saving relationship with the Lord, but there was no fellowship. Not until his prayers were the voice of his supplications, that is, and God would then be especially attentive, as any father would be with a prodigal son or daughter who returned. King David described this uh, kind of experience in Psalm 32 when he said, when I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. Day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you 
and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So David says there is this experience of, of, you know, he put it a different way, but it's drowning in the depths of your sin. For him, his bones were all waxing old and all that. And then he repented and came back into a fellowship with God. And so that's what this psalm is about. Verse 3, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? You probably make lists, to-do lists, grocery lists, checklists. Who doesn't like a good top ten list? For some time now, bucket lists have been a common pop culture reference. The psalmist supposed that the Lord lists our iniquities. Now, I'm not sure how the records in heaven are kept. The truth is we are all born dead in trespasses and sins. We're already marked, as it were, from the womb. There doesn't, therefore, need to be a long list of the sins that we've committed. All have sinned and fall short. There is no one who can stand before God. Sin is the universal problem of the human race. You don't hear sin talked about that often. Whatever happened to sin? Now people call good evil and evil good. In fact, even the word evil. I remember when George Bush used the word evil to talk about the axis of evil. Iran, Iraq, and one of the Koreas. Uh, And people were, what does he mean evil? How can you use that word? I came across this quote. The author is talking just about the history of the United States. He says, for nearly two centuries, the mainstream Protestant churches and the Roman Catholic Church taught that man was guilty of sin and needed to repent. In the second quarter of the 20th century, that's how recent it is, liberal Protestantism began putting less emphasis on sin and the negatives of the Christian faith and concentrating on the positives. In the 1950s, Norman Vincent Peale famed minister of the Marble Collegiate Church in New York City, concentrated on the power of positive thinking, which became the title of his best-selling blockbuster. Peel asserted that by concentrating on the positive things of life, one could overcome the many fears and failures and develop the self-confidence needed to capitalize on his or her true God-given talents and abilities. He was criticized by many theologians and medical doctors of preaching false hope, but he was enormously uh, popular. He was followed by Robert Schuller, founder of the Crystal Cathedral in Orange County, California. Gradually, mainline Protestantism has concentrated on the positive aspects of Christian faith. It has been the evangelical churches that have continued to stress the sinfulness of the human race and the need for repentance. One theologian commented, he said this, Beware preachers and teachers who swap out terms like sin and wickedness and depravity for brokenness and pain and trauma. The psalmist asks, who can stand? Only a perfect man, a man without sin. That man was and is the God-man, Jesus Christ. He alone was God come in human flesh. Since sin's punishment is death, he could die in our place as our substitute. When a person believes that, when they believe Jesus, that person is said to be in Christ, a Christian. And basically, God sees you the way he sees his son. He sees you finished and perfected by Jesus, who promised that the work he began in you at the moment of your being saved, he will be faithful to complete. You cannot stand before God in your iniquities, but Jesus can stand before God, and if you are in him, your sins have been forgiven. 
Verse 4, but there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Unless there is another God-man who led a perfect life and fulfilled more than 350 Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah to the letter, there is forgiveness only in Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. People get mad. They say, well, you guys are so exclusive. You know, why does it have to be Jesus? Because of a little thing called the Old Testament, who predicted, which predicted the coming of Jesus Christ. More than 350 prophecies. Uh, obviously, no one could fulfill them unless he were the fulfillment of them. Uh, you don't find that in any other religious writing, in any philosophy, in any psychology. All you find there is a works-oriented life, trying to do more and more and more to earn the favor of a perfect God. That's never going to happen. You get in through Jesus Christ. But if there is forgiveness with you, you may be feared. You may be feared is the renewed joy of parental forgiveness. We are forgiven and can therefore walk with God, enjoying fellowship with him, receiving grace and mercy from our Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, by means of God, the Holy Spirit, indwelling us. And so do you feel like you're in the depths, not from a trial, but from backsliding a la Jonah or David? Are you at the point where you need a breath, but you know there's no air, you're so deep? Cry out. I'm suggesting we all dwell upon God's forgiveness. First of all, have you appropriated his forgiveness by receiving Jesus as your Savior? We're not a huge group, but there's somebody in here this morning that is not a Christian. Uh, and if that's you, today is the day of your salvation. God is here to uh, free your will so that you can choose Christ as your Savior. Second of all, if you have appropriated his forgiveness, do you apprehend it? Meaning, do you grasp the wonder of it so that you fear God in a daily walk with him that involves your whole mind, will, and strength, holding no sin in reserve? Does it, uh, you know, I guess in 60s language, does it blow your mind that you have a relationship with the creator of the universe when you're such a sinner? Because he and he alone has forgiven your sin. Something we ought to dwell upon. Not our sin. You know, a lot of times... You know, testimonies are great. A lot of times people dwell on the sin in their testimony. I don't need to know how much alcohol you drank or how many doobies you smoked or you know, how many times you hit the bong or, you know, how many this or that. Uh, it, you know, I, I, you're, you were born a sinner. I don't care what you did or didn't do. You were already born a sinner. The glory is in God's ability to forgive you your sin and remain righteous. He remains just as he justifies the, for the believing sinner. It's amazing. There's, if you really study it, there's no other way human beings can be saved. Jesus, I mean, he says he's the way, the truth, and life, but he really is uh, just from a point of view of analysis. Revel in God's forgiveness of your sins. Waiting. It's mostly unpleasant. We hate to wait. I grew impatient waiting for the web page about waiting to load that I'm going to quote from. You're going to spend, you're going to be a little bit depressed here right now. You're going to spend two years of your life waiting in lines. That figure probably needs to be adjusted to accommodate COVID-19. And I say you can spend two years waiting in line this year at Smart and Final. If I asked you where Americans hate waiting in line most, what would you say? 
No, no, well, the DMV, of course. Been to the DMV? Anybody here work for the DMV? No? Have you been there lately? They have like these plaques all over the place warning you that if you uh, assault a federal employee that you're going to jail. And I think, whoa, whoa, whoa. what kind of a place, you know, <laughs> is this? And then you find out. Verse 5, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I do hope. Now, his, he wasn't waiting to be forgiven. He wasn't waiting to feel forgiven. He wasn't waiting to be worthy of forgiveness. Forgiveness has always been instantaneous for a believer. I would quickly cite the parable of the prodigal son. Immediately upon return to the father, you are forgiven. Technically, the prodigal son doesn't even really repent. He has a repentant heart, but he doesn't say certain words. The father receives him immediately. Psalmist was waiting to see how God was going to work in his life in the aftermath of his sinning. Seems like he spent waiting, getting into the word of God to renew his hope in the nature and character of God. There he would be reminded that God would not and could not refuse forgiveness to a repentant believer. Don't read the, excuse me, verse six. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. Don't read this as if the watchman couldn't wait for his shift to end. And morning, when is morning going to come so I can get out of here? No, Think of it in a Cat Stevens kind of way. Morning has broken like the first morning. The joy of the new day, the wonder of it, the, the amazing things that it could hold. Anybody know who Cat Stevens is? Raise your hand. Not too bad. Yusef Islam, you know who that is? That's Cat Stevens. But anyway, I can quote that song because it's a Cat Stevens song, not a Yusuf Islam song. So I've just absolved myself of any wrongdoing. God has already forgiven me, and so you must as well. <laughs> King David had been in the depths, but he cried out to the Lord. After his sin with Bathsheba, God told David the child they conceived would die. The king nevertheless fasted and prayed, waiting on the Lord to see the actual outcome. He found hope in the word of God, knowing that God could be merciful and that he himself could repent in that he might change the outcome. 100% confident in God's parental forgiveness, David actively waited on the Lord to heal his child. When the child died, David went about his life joyfully. Now, the context of this psalm is forgiveness from your iniquities. We are not talking about a trial you might find yourself in or an injury or an illness that afflicts you. If that's your situation, we are not suggesting you are in the depths of sin needing to repent. Don't burden yourself unnecessarily. So if you're going through a trial, maybe you're ill uh, or injured, this isn't, it's not necessarily, and it's probably not at all, the result of your iniquities or sins. We're talking about full-blown backsliding in some area of your life, sinning that has broken fellowship with God. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is abundant redemption, and he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Living in a fallen world, we're used to natural resources becoming depleted. Regardless your environmental politics, we might cite the fact that experts say in 100 years, the world's rainforest will be gone. Uh, and so we're depleting that resource. Now, I guess if there's people alive at that time, we'll figure out if the rainforest was important or not. And you'll have to say, oh, dear, 
it was important, or C, we can go on depleting everything. The Lord's resources can never be depleted. He has just as much mercy for you as always, always full, always free. In the 80s, remember Mama Celeste? Who remembers Mama Celeste commercials? Does she still make pizza? Can you still buy Mama Celeste pizzas? There was a commercial where uh, she had a restaurant and, and she had a pizza for one. And, and she would come out and give it, you know, and put it in front of the sky and she'd go, what, remember what she said? Abondanza, abundant. Redemption and redeem dominate the closing words. Our minds immediately go to the transaction by which a person is purchased out of slavery. We think in terms of initial salvation. Israel, here portrayed as a single person, had long been redeemed out of slavery in Egypt. The psalmist was using redeem in a different sense. And so redeem can be used in a non-theological sense of, let's say, to redeem a certain situation. In our psalm, the idea is that the Lord will redeem the wreckage and the ruin that an Israelite or Israel might make in backsliding. Sin has consequences. And God can't take away the consequences of sin. David's son died. That was a consequence of his sin. So how did the Lord redeem it? Well, for one thing, in the aftermath, a forgiven David would write Psalm 32 and 51. These have been a comfort to who knows how many prodigal sons and daughters. And so if you understand, it should be that those Psalms were never written. David should have never sinned with Bathsheba. But because he did, and confessed his sin, and began to walk with the Lord again in a sense of parental forgiveness, God inspired him to write those amazing psalms. For another thing, in the aftermath, a forgiven David would say to his servants, but now my son is dead, how can I bring him back? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Indicating that David believed God that his son is newborn child with no ability to understand sin, therefore couldn't repent of sin, was nevertheless in the presence of the Lord. Those words have been a comfort to who knows how many grieving parents of children below the age of accountability who have died. Are you going to write the next best-selling Christian book or establish a worldwide ministry after backsliding? Probably not doesn't make the Lord's redemption any less important. You will rise from the wreckage to serve him again. It almost sounds as if we are soft on sin. No, we believe we're generous in grace. We're ecstatic that God does not mark our iniquities. Now, some take it too far. There's been a teaching for some years that since your present and future sins are already forgiven, you should never ask for forgiveness because it's, it already belongs to you, and so there's no reason to go to your Heavenly Father and ask Him to forgive you. There's a lot of theological arguments one way or the other and Greek words and all of this, but let's just, let me just think about your own family for a minute. Sometimes these things are so simple to solve. Think about your family if you have children. Can your children disobey and disrespect you without repentance simply because you love them? At the breakfast table, there's police are about to arrest a child right now. But anyway, <laughs> you're at the breakfast table. Your son, or your, let's say your son comes and you say, good morning, son, how are you? Shut up, old man. 
Uh, would you like some pancakes? I want a waffle, you idiot. What are you planning on doing today? Are you going to do that weeding we talked about? Give me your car keys right now. I'm going to go out and get drunk with my friends. And I, while you were sleeping, I took 50 bucks out of your wallet. Okay. I know that if you asked me to forgive you, I would. So have a nice day. That, that, that wouldn't fly at your house, would it? Wouldn't fly at my house. And so that's all you need to know. There is such a thing as parental forgiveness where you come back into fellowship with the Lord. And David said it just broke through his life and into his heart, made all the difference in the world. We should never think teaching on grace leads to a license to sin. But when we do sin, one thing is true. Where sin, uh, where sin abounds, God's grace is abondanza. Amen? Amen.